chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 7 through 15. I've titled our lesson tonight, The Great White Throne Judgment, The Final Judgment. Uh, We are going to see the overthrow of the final overthrow of Satan and the final judgment that is rendered by our Lord against the unbeliever. And there are many important details here tonight that I want to make sure that we uh, do address. I want to teach them to you. Um, For some of you, these things may be uh, new. For some of you, they're probably not new. This is probably something that you've studied before and you're quite familiar with these things. Um, But ultimately, the study of eschatology or the study of last things, what we are looking at here, the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, this apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation, The study of eschatology helps anchor our worldview. It helps to anchor our worldview in this sense that our hope is final in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we will see tonight is that what is yet coming, what is prophesied here in Revelation chapter 20, it anchors our hope in Christ as we uh, humbly come before him rejoicing in that final victory that he brings as our sovereign Lord and Savior as he finally defeats and casts down Satan and all those who run with him after the millennial kingdom. What we saw last week in verses 1 through 6 was the reference to the 1,000-year millennial reign, the earthly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look there at verse number 1. John says of Revelation chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Then we studied last week as well that this physical earthly reign of Christ for a literal 1,000 years upon the earth at Jerusalem will be marked, it will be a reign of kingdom that is marked by peace, prosperity, tranquility, geological and zoological changes, unlike anything the world has ever seen. It might be marked by longevity. The infant will live, the child will live to 100 years old. There will still be death. There will be people born during the millennial kingdom. Those people born, many of them will be unbelievers. Um, But all believers will enter into the millennial kingdom, and there will be children born during the thousand years, and some of them will be, many of them will be, unbelievers. But we saw that, you know, there's much debate about should the 1,000 years be taken literally? Is it a 1,000 year literal millennial reign of Christ? And we established that it makes the most sense and the most consistency with our hermeneutic, our interpretation of the Bible, that this 1,000 years should be taken literally for more than one reason. One, anywhere that a 1,000 years or a number precedes a year in the Bible, it's always taken literally. Secondly, the primary emphasis for a literal interpretation of verses 1 through 6 is based on the fact that the main thrust of the text is talking about resurrection. It's talking about a resurrection, the resurrection that will precede the 1,000-year reign of Christ and this resurrection that we're going to see of the wicked that that follows the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. So prior to the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ, we see the resurrection of the godly. Remember, it came in three phases Christ the first fruits, that first resurrection. If you look at verse number five, Revelation chapter 20, verse five, you see this is the first 
resurrection. And immediately our minds begin to think, well, that must be one singular first resurrection. Well, in a sense it is, but it transpires in three phases. Christ the first fruits, and if you recall, when Christ was crucified, the graves were open, and bodies of the saints came out of the graves, out of the tombs, and walked around in Jerusalem. They were resurrected from the dead um, in that unique, mysterious way at the crucifixion of Christ. But Christ is the first fruits of resurrection. He is risen from the dead. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Then those saints alive during the rapture of the church, they will be, the graves will be opened. Those who are dead in Christ shall rise first, and those who are alive and remain, they shall be caught up to him caught up to meet him in the air, and so shall we ever be with him in the Lord. Uh, be with the Lord. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, you can check that out some other time. So this is a sequential first resurrection. And then, what we saw was the resurrection of those beheaded, or those saints that were executed during the tribulation period in verse 4. They are the final phase of that first Resurrection to try to get you guys caught up to speed as we look at verse number seven. So really, the main thrust, what John describes to us, is not necessarily all the many details of the of the millennial kingdom. He expects you to go back and see what those details are, as revealed in the Old Testament and Matthew twenty four and twenty five. And he wants you to go back and find out those details. He doesn't give us these details here in Revelation chapter twenty. He essentially says there is a resurrection. And that is the first resurrection. And those who are not part of the first resurrection in verse 6, over these, verse 6, the second death has no authority. And that's where we get up to today. Satan is bound in verse 7, and when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released, that's future tense, will be released from his prison. A couple things I want to talk about here. First, I want to give you three headings that will help facilitate our study tonight. The first one is the defeat of Satan. We're going to see that in verses 7 through 10. This is still building off of last week's study. And the second uh, heading that I want us to see uh, tonight will be in verses 11 through 15, and that is the great white throne judgment. But first, let's look at Satan. Who is he? You say, well, why do we have to go into this? I want to remind you. I want to remind you that of the significance of Satan being mentioned here and why is he being released in verse 7 from the prison. Satan is the dragon, as mentioned in verse 2. He is the serpent of old, the snake of Genesis chapter 3. He's the devil, Satan, John says. He is marked by unhinged pride. Uh, we can read that in Isaiah 14, a description that gives us the d- description of Satan's character. He is known as our adversary, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He is referred to as the prince of the power of the air, or the ruler of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. He is also seen as the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience in Ephesians chapter 2. He's known as the deceiver in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve through 15. And also here in this passage, if you look down to verse 10, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, he is who the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. He is known as a deceiver. He is the tempter, according to Matthew chapter 4. He is the liar and the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. He is also the father of all the unsaved. 
That's when Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says, you are of your father, the devil, if you are unconverted. Those are harsh words coming from our Lord. But he is emphasizing the significance of our enemy. He is referred to, Satan is known as that anointed cherub of Ezekiel chapter 28. And the Old Testament refers to him as Belial. He is the enemy. Matthew 13, verse 28, it was in reference to sowing the this, this wheat, the tares among the wheat. This is your enemy. He is the one that has targeted you, Christian, from the day you were born. He is the one that seeks to overthrow governments. He's the one that seeks to incite wars and violence and terror among the land. He has attacked the globe since Genesis chapter 3. He is the one that threw everything off. He is more than an enemy. He is Satan. Do you know what the name Satan means? Accuser. Just think about that. A lot of people want to think that evil is passive. That somehow evil is something that you have to engage in. Or human beings are neutral. And therefore they either engage in evil or they don't engage in evil. But Satan is known as the accuser. He is on the accusation side. He is coming out after the brethren. This is something that we need to be familiar with. He is bound for a thousand years and then he's released. Does anybody else in here say, why? Why is he released? I was standing here one, one morning and Linda Buderbaugh said, why would he ever be let out of prison? I hope to answer that for you tonight. Carl, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was a question. Is he physical, non-physical, or both? I think he's, like the angels, he's spirit. And he can deceive. And he can transform himself into an angel of light, like Second Corinthians chapter 11. He can be seen, he can manipulate, he can uh, function. He's beautiful, he's seen as beautiful. But angels are spirit beings. I think that he can transform himself into a, as a spirit being or in a physical being as well. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. That's one thing that drives me crazy a lot about the Pentecostal movement is people think the devil is attacking them. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. Uh, you know, he's not lurking around the bathroom door there. You know, he, he's not God. Uh, so I think most, for the most part, who carries out his evil plan are all the legions of fallen angels. So, yeah. Yeah, taking the form of a certain serpent was simply deceptive. And there's mystery there, too, as well. It seems to, we would think in Genesis that somehow the serpent was created with legs first, but then now it doesn't have legs as a result of the fall. But, um, yeah, it's just, there's a mystery there. He's obviously referred to as masculine, so he's, he's, he's got male uh, uh, distinguishing characteristics, so. But he's flat out, he's our enemy. He's Belial. He is the fallen anointed cherub. And he's released. What's up with that? Um, So I want to give you four possibilities. And I think these are very good uh, potential possibilities as to why Satan was released here in verse 7. Number one, God has providentially allowed him to be released after this 1,000 year millennial reign to demonstrate that man, listen very closely to this, to demonstrate that man, even under the most favorable conditions and circumstances, will fall into sin if he's left to his own choice. That's number one. These individuals are alive during the 1,000-year earthly reign of Christ. Jesus is physically present 
and they still choose sin. I think Satan is released in order to demonstrate that man, even under the most favorable circumstances, will still choose sin. He is, as we like to refer to in theological terms, mankind is totally depraved. His, his mind, his emotion, and his will are fallen. It's like the pig illustration I always talk about. If you have a T-bone steak and a bucket of garbage and you let a pig through the door, which one's he going to go to? He's going to go to the bucket of garbage. Why? Because he's a pig. Man, mankind, um, we're sinners. And we're sinners by nature. Number two, why would Satan be released? To demonstrate the foreknowledge of God who foretells the acts of men as well as his own acts. So, he, he is foretelling that this will take place. He foretells the acts of men just as God foretells his own acts. Number three, I think this is more reflective as to why I took you in through all those uh, characteristics of Satan. Number three is to demonstrate the incurable wickedness of the devil. He's released and he doesn't seek righteousness. He still wants to overthrow Christ. He still wants to come. He still wants to be God. What a, his incurable wickedness is on full display. And finally, and I think this is another very accurate statement. I read this in a commentary. I can't take credit for this. Satan is released to justify, to justify eternal punishment. That is, to show the unchanged character of wicked people, even under divine jurisdiction for a long period of time. These individuals have been alive for hundreds, if not a thousand years, and they still seek sin. And they will be justly condemned. They will be justly punished and judged. Look at verse 8. And will, so Satan comes out of his prison, he's released, and he'd notice he doesn't escape. He's released on purpose. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. That's hyperbole. You can't count the sand on the seashore. It's hyperbole. It's an over-exaggeration. This is a massive amount of people. It's going to be a thousand years. How many people are born during a thousand years? A lot. So there's a lot of people here, and they're all deceived by Satan. They're following after their sin. And the big question here arises in verse 8. What's up with Gog and Magog? Who or what is that? Well, not much is mentioned in the Bible regarding these terms. In fact, only one mention is, that I could find was regarding Magog in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. But not much is mentioned in the Bible regarding these terms, and therefore we shouldn't, listen to this very closely, we shouldn't take this phrase here in the middle of verse 8 of, Roman, of Revelation chapter 20 and build an entire eschatological dogmatic doctrine off of it. Okay, We don't build an entire prophecy conference off Gog and Magog as what's found here in verse 8, in its simplicity, and it doesn't have any other mention really found anywhere else in the entire Bible. But Magog is mentioned, and he's the grandson of Noah. And Magog settled, as you might have guessed it, to the north of the Black Sea. And if anybody has studied geography, you'll, see, you'll know that north of the Black Sea is where? Does anybody know? Anybody have a, anybody have a guess? Russia. Russia. It's Russia. Um, 
And a lot of people will say, well, look, now Gog and Magog. Gog has something to do with the leadership of Magog, and therefore Russia is going to be the one that constitutes the uh, final attack from Satan as he's released from his prison. That's not what's being said here. Simply put, this seems to be the name of the rebel army under the leadership of Satan and the deceived national leaders. So Gog would be the definition of the leadership, and Magog would be the definition of the armies that attack, that try to attack Christ. Gog is apparently the leader of the rebel army. Magog is the army comprised of the people from all over the world. As numerous as the sand of the sea. That's hyperbole. It's an over-exaggeration. It doesn't mean that they're going to be, you know, that many. as the, We can't count the sand of the sea, but there's going to be many. So then this leads us to Satan's end. Satan's end in verses 9 and 10. Look there. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Well, where's that? That's Jerusalem. Um, I'm not going to take you to every cross-reference that helps to support that, but that's obviously Jerusalem. It's the camp of the saints and that beloved city. Why? Because Christ is reigning there. And notice what happens. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Similar circumstance took place in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God rained fire and brimstone and buried Sodom and Gomorrah at the bottom of the Dead Sea. It's the same thing. God just rains fire down. Literally, it's, it's, not, it's not exemplified here in verses 9 and 10, but he just wipes it out. And I believe, and what I find in this text here between verses 9 and 11, as we'll see in a moment, I think this is God wiping it all out. I think this is the Lord folding it up like a garment, as he says in the Old Testament. I think between verses 9 and 11, I think we see what Peter referred to in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, that says that the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Literally, the phrase in the original language there in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 is describing an atomic implosion, an atomic implosion where the releasing of the atoms are actually coming apart. And everything is, as verse number 11 says, they fled from the presence. Earth and heaven fled away from him. It's just literally like an atomic just wipeout. Uh, with this fire that came down from heaven. But notice verse 10. The devil who deceived them, it's very interesting how he's going to do that, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This fire comes down from heaven. It is the cataclysmic end that is spoken of all throughout Scripture. The end of the day of the Lord. Now you have this phrase, the lake of fire. Is that hell? Is that Sheol? Is that Hades? The lake of fire is more permanent. So if you think about it this way, the English translation hell is not necessarily an accurate one. Um, Really, it's the Hebrew word Sheol or Hades that we should be using for the place of the dead. When somebody dies, they go to the place of the torment where the Sheol or Hades is, is referred to as hell. <clears throat> but ultimately, hell is going to be cast into the lake of fire. So we see that the lake of fire is a permanent, fixed torment that will not abate. It, it will be there forever. Notice it's referred to as a lake of fire. That there's nothing going out of it. There is no escape. It's not the sea of fire. 
It, it is the lake of fire. It's not the puddle of fire. It's the lake of fire. It is an, an, it is an overemphasis of eternality and permanence. <clears throat> Satan is going to ultimately end up there. He is cast, notice, where the beast and the false prophet are also. That's present tense. Even though this is prophetic language, they will have been there already for a thousand years and they have not been annihilated. That's very important. You'll have some cults today that want to teach annihilationism. That whenever you die, that's it. That's done. YOLO, you're done. That's it. It's annihilated. And then all of a sudden there is no more. You know, death is all you got and then you're just happy. Or you hear these silly country songs that want to make a joke about going to hell and having a party. Are you out of your mind? The one thing that I love about Jonathan Edwards, everybody remember <laughs> me talking about Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards wrote that one, preached that wonderful sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that sin, the stories about people in his church that were weeping and throwing themselves on the ground and clinging to the posts of the wall because they were so afraid that hell would open up beneath their feet and just suck them in. He had such a way of powerfully conveying the terrors of hell. He referred to the sinner as being hanging from a spider's thread in the hands of God over the mouth of hell. And that's the way all Jonathan Edwards would have to do is just contemplate the terrors of hell and it would prompt him to preach and reach sinners uh, with the gospel. And there was such an, an amazing movement of God's spirit that people were weeping and crying and clinging to the doorposts as they thought that they were going to be opened up and sent to hell in a very moment by the power of God through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. The most important part about that, though, is he didn't use emotionalism to stir him up. Yeah, I don't know how he, he did that. He preached in a monotone voice. That's what I heard, that he, so, he read it. It really wasn't him, him you know, stirring those emotions up. It was uh, the Holy Spirit working in people's hearts. I, I've heard various, uh, I've read various circumstances that some would say that he read his sermons word for word, verbatim, manuscript. And, and he just monotone plowed through the sermon and people were just moved by the word of God. An amazing thing. But there's one thing I want to emphasize here and it, it is that there is no annihilationism. That, that hell is real. Torment is real. It is for eternity. And you're not going to escape it. It's not going to be a party. You're not going to be down there on the beach kicking up having margaritas like these people think that they're going to be doing. Uh, it's going to be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth darkness uh, you know has anybody ever heard a a brutal scream in the in the dark like like the the ear piercing heart piercing scream of terror in the darkness i mean i i would i would think that there's very few things that that send chills up the back of your spine like hearing a blood curdling scream in the dark and not being able to find, see, or help that individual. Just think of that for eternity with heat, with torments, as screams and piercing and pain and gnarling and grinding of teeth and wailing for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of eons with no end in sight. This is, people want to think, nah, you know, there's no hell. This is all you got. You know, you only live once. Live it up. Listen, dear ones, flee to the cross of Christ. You know your guilt. You know your guilt. Every man, woman, and child in this world knows that they are guilty. They've broken God's law. 
flee to the cross of Christ and find refuge in what Christ has finished in a substitutionary atonement on behalf of his sinners. There's no outlet, outlet in this lake of fire. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In the Greek language in verse 10, it is so, it is taken to the magna, it is taken to the uttermost. It is like saying ages on ages, that they will be there day and night Agnosium. It's just forever with no end in sight. It is, it is a superlative. It is the utmost degree. Verse 11. This now brings it. Actually, I want to show you something. Jesus had mentioned this. I'm just going to read this to you. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus said, Then he will also, he's referring to himself as he's teaching there, he will also say to those on his left, remember the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, he will say on, to those on his left, Depart from me at the judgment, accursed ones, into the eternal lake or eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I actually had a, I actually had a guy come up to me one time and say, there is no hell because the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for sinners. Really? That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. So not only is Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, are they going to be there in eternity in the lake of fire? So will everyone that rejected Christ. Everyone that rejected Christ. This leads us to uh, the great white throne judgment in verse number 11. John says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it from whose presence heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them then I saw the dead and we'll get to this in a minute but then I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades, there's another reference there to Sheol, or the Hebrew phrase for the place of the dead, place of torment. Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what is this great white throne judgment that just takes place? I've had people think that the believers are part of this. This judgment, dear ones, solidify this in your mind. This is for unbelievers. This is the judgment of unbelievers. A lot of people will say, well, whenever we get to that day and the books are open, everybody's going to see all the sin that I ever had in my life and it's going to be wide open. No, dear ones, your sin has been judged upon the cross. Is it all going to be made manifest and open? In a sense, yes. But I've actually had people say, you know, is is my whole life going to play out on a movie screen up there in heaven, you know, and everybody's going to see all my sin and wickedness? No. It's, look, it's not about you. (laughs) That's the big thing we need to remember. This is not about you. Believe, if you are in Christ, first of all, the great white throne judgment is the judgment of unbelievers. Secondly, your judgment has already fallen upon Christ at the cross. And we'll get to that in a moment. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but let's explore this. Three words. Great, 
white throne. What does great mean? Great means supreme. This is the supreme court of the entire universe. Isn't that amazing? This is the ultimate courtroom. This is the great white throne. This is the supreme, final, all-powerful, elevated throne. Remember Isaiah 6? I saw in in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He was high and lifted up. This throne is elevated. It is above. It is supreme. It is white. Every time we read about white, it's the symbol of purity. It's the symbol of righteousness. Holiness. No mistakes. Completely without error or perversion. There is, there is no miscarriage of justice in this circumstance. Christ does not make a mistake. It is perfectly pure judgment. It is perfectly righteous judgment. It is pure and white. And probably the, of these three words, the greatest one that I take the most joy in is this word throne. This is the great white throne. Kings sit upon thrones. And only kings sit upon thrones. And this is the supreme king. This is the lamb king. The son of God king. The king of kings. This is the Lord of lords seated upon the great white throne. He is perfect. He is sovereign. He is in complete authority over the entire universe. This is God. The Lord Jesus Christ seated upon the throne high and lifted up. Christ is the supreme judge. He is the supreme one. Go with me to John chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus again te- is again teaching here in John chapter 5, verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, for He has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not, pay very close attention to this, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Do you see what I was trying to tell you there earlier? That people think get all bent out of shape thinking that their whole life is going to be played out on some crazy movie screen up in heaven. Jesus just said that eternal life does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death unto life. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave this to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life and those who uh, committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. You see the two resurrections there. Jesus is referring to this. He's teaching this. This is consistent all throughout the New Testament. This is consistent with the entire Bible, as we'll see in a moment in Daniel chapter 12. This is that final, supreme, 
Judgment is rendered. It is done. After this future moment, everything will be finished. This is referring to, as Jesus did here, this is referring to the resurrection of, and judgment of unbelievers at the great white throne. Go back with me to Re- Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about these books that are mentioned, and we'll end up uh, finishing here. Just, just a side note. People even today, they wonder how, you know, why did John say that the sea gives up the dead? I saw the dead, the great and the small, this resurrection that we're talking about that Jesus just referred to. The great and the small standing in verse 12 before the throne and the books were opened. And if you jump down a little bit there, you'll see in verse 13 that the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades also gave up the dead which were in them, etc. And we see that... John mentions that the sea gives up the dead because what happens when a body goes into the sea? Well, it becomes no more. The decomposition process that takes place in salt water is rather quick. There's nothing left. You know, we've all seen the pictures of the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean where the Titanic is sunk. And we've seen those, those um, rather morbid pictures of the shoes. Just little shoes. Leather shoes, side by side, right and left, where a body once was. And I, I was doing a little bit of research. Why? I have no idea. I think it was regard to this study uh, in Revelation chapter 20 previously. What happens to a body that travels down two miles down at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean? Um, some, some, some scientists tried to do it. They sent a pig, a body of a pig, with an anchor down to the bottom of the ocean. And within three days, it was gone. The, bact- the uh, electrolysis with the salt water... Uh, the microbes in the ocean and the crabs and the different animals that live there, the, the body was gone. And uh, it didn't take long at all. So notice that John says the sea gave up their dead. For everybody in the Greek culture during the first century, they'd be thinking, this is just, no, this is not possible. When a body goes into the ground, it rots, it turns back to dirt. There's no way that that body can come back. There's no body left. Guys, if God can speak the universe into existence by the will of his word and the power of his might, he can raise a body from the salt water. No matter what decomposition state it is in. Bodies burned in a fire. Bodies never found in a storm or in a landslide or wherever it may be. In the bottom of the ocean. God is going to raise every human being that has ever lived. They will come to life. They will come in a form that is suitable for eternity, whether suited for hell or suited for life with Christ. He has the power to do it. This is not a question. This is what, exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. How do you ask, there is no, how do you ask about the resurrection and what body we're going to have? God can do whatever he wants. That's the argument that John is making here. He's reaffirming what has been taught throughout the New Testament. But what about these books? Just that, that was just a little side note there. The books, plural were opened. Every city in the ancient world would have had a book, a ledger that had everybody's name in it who was a member of that city. And they would have usually their name, their occupation, and the date that they were born or they thought that they were born and they, in order to have some sort of record of their age. So in a sense, John is referring to the books of heaven, the books of the universe, the books of omniscient God, a supernatural book. The books were opened. Why is it supernatural? Because it is recorded in those books every sin 
every wicked deed that these individuals did, every sin committed by every wicked person, every thought, every word, every deed is recorded by the omniscient God in these books of the unbelievers. Everything. Nothing will go unmarked or unknown. Just think about that for a moment as a Christian. And this should sober us up. Jesus says every word that you speak, you will give an account for. Every word. Every word you speak. Every slanderous thing you've ever said about another brother or sister in Christ, you're going to have to give an account. Every time that you've said something that was directed at somebody out of anger or out of, or out of emotion or you lost your coal or whatever it was, you're going to give an account. I'm going to give an account for this very moment and the words that are coming out of my mouth. It's a fearful thing. It should be a sobering thing. I would even go as far as to, to say that maybe they didn't come out of your mouth. Maybe they're just rattling around up there in the noggin. And you're holding on to this bitterness and this resentment and these malicious words in your mind. And every time you see this particular individual, they are just screaming out in your head how much you hate them. You'll give an account. You'll give an account. That should sober us up. To what point? Lord God, please forgive me. I'm such a wicked wretch. My flesh takes over so easy. When I start getting sweaty, I kick the dog. No, I didn't kick my dog. I didn't kick the dog. But I'm just saying that whenever I start getting, uh, you know, my physical discomfort or I get hot or, or, you know, I lose my temper or something, you know, you say something that's hurtful to somebody and say, you wish you could take it back, but you can't. What do we do? God, rain my tongue. Rain my heart. Help me to be more like Christ. The books are opened. Obviously, this is regarding the wicked, but not only the wicked. Notice, the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Contains the names of all the redeemed, all the elect, from before the foundation of the world. You say, well, where in the world do you get that? Okay, go back with me to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. This isn't the first time we've met, we've encountered this book, Revelation 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Go to Revelation 17, verse 8. You should have a little circle or something around these, these verses, a little line or something marking these. They're very important. Revelation 17, verse 8. And those, in the middle of the verse, those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. That's that stage resurrection that takes place that the uh, Antichrist performs. <clears throat> and he deceives all those ones who are not written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. I remember being at a teen, uh, teen um, camp at a college in southern West Virginia. And I've talked about this camp before. And we were standing around with a group of, I would say they were a bunch of youth pastors, you know. Everybody had uh, skinny jeans on and weird looking hair. And, uh, you know, I felt really out of place. And we're standing around, just kind of standing around, lingering around. And this one kid says, he, he, he had an acquaintance there that he hadn't seen in a couple of years. And he said, yeah, you know, hey, Johnny, how you doing? 
And Johnny says, oh, you know, I'm just trying to get my name written in the book. And I laughed. I like laughed out loud. I, I, I laughed verbally and, and loudly and no one else did. And I'm standing there I'm like, you seriously didn't mean that, did you? But he looked at me dead square in the face like, he legitimately thought, I got to do what it takes to get my name written in that book. What a pathetic state of life to be in. Look, if you love Christ, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you love his word, I can assure you that your name is written in the book. If you love Jesus Christ and you love his word, you shouldn't be trying to get your name stamped in the book. That's, that's lunacy. These are written from before. Isn't this, a, isn't this a precious joy to you from before the foundation of the world? Same thing happened in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Since before the foundation of the world. Go to Daniel. I know we've got a couple minutes. Just go to Daniel chapter 12. Last chapter in Daniel. Look at verse number 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Forgive me for moving quickly here. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will stand and there will be a time of distress. That's referring to the tribulation period. Such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, and the others, but the others to reproach and everlasting contempt. Again, consistency, Old Testament, New Testament. Daniel, the most prophetic book in probably the entire Old Testament, compared to Revelation, definitely the most prophetic book in the uh, New Testament. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, you don't have to go there, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, that God knows those that are His. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, as I mentioned, He has chosen us in Him since before the foundation of the world. In John 17, verse 6, Jesus in His high priestly prayer says, those whom you have given Me. In John chapter 15, verse 6, Jesus tells His disciples, you have not chosen Me, but I have chosen you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, and I do want to read that to you. These are referring to those who have been written in the book of life, the life of the Lamb. <clears throat> in 2 Thessalonians chapter, three, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. This is where we can make some application right now. Okay? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. What should you do when you read things like Revelation chapter 20, when you read things like 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, which is another prophetic book, First and 2 Thessalonians are prophetic literature? You should give thanks. You should give thanks. Have you been thankful today? Have you, have you truly been thankful? Have you legitimately thought to yourself, Lord, if you had not moved in me, I would have never come to you. 
If you had not transformed my heart by your word, I would still be running in my sin. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for rescuing me from hell. This is enough to make our knees buckle and fall on our faces before a holy God and say, nothing did I do to secure this. This is you. Are you, are you really going to come to Revelation chapter 20 and say, oh, well, I'm sure I'm glad I've jumped through all them hoops to get my name in the book. What? This should cause us to just put our faces in the dirt and say, thank you, Christ, for saving me. I didn't do anything. When you look across the street and you see your goofy neighbor lighting fireworks off underneath his car and you think he's crazy, when you look over there and you say, what's wrong with that guy? Why won't he come to Christ? You can say, Lord, if, that wasn't for you, if it wasn't for your grace, that's me. If it wasn't for your mercy towards me, your undeserved favor and your undeserved love, I would be probably dead. If it wasn't for your grace, Lord, I wouldn't even be breathing. The very breath in your lungs right now is a gift from God. You were able to get into a vehicle and drive here. That's a gift from God. You have a home, a roof, a family, your health. There is so much to be thankful for. And and what do we do? We complain. (laughs) How crazy are we? We're crazy. What are we thinking? We need to survey what God says in his word more often and put our faces in the mud and remind ourselves that it wasn't you. We love him because he first loved us. This is game changer stuff. This is huge. This is so weighty. Let me give you a quick couple points of application as we close. Four points. I've kind of brushed on them just in passing here. One, doesn't this bring you peace? You're saying, wait wait a minute. I mean, I see this great white throne judgment. Everybody's going to be cast in the lake of fire. How does that bring me peace? Satan's done. There is a time. He's defeated now. He's been defeated at the cross. He's a defeated foe. But he's not bound right now. He's obviously wreaking havoc in the world. This is still a world that is ravaged by sin. Wouldn't you say that? There's still a world that we're dealing with that is ravaged by sin. But there is a time coming when Satan will yet be eternally crushed in the sense that he is cast into the lake of fire never to torment torment believers or come after Christ in any way, shape, or form forever. That should bring you great peace. Knowing also another factor of great peace is that no man plucks them out of my Father's hand. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says in John chapter 10. They know me, and they come to me. Secondly, doesn't this make you rejoice? King Jesus, (laughs) King, my King, my Christ, is supreme. He is above all. He is superior. He is and has the preeminence. That just causes me to rejoice. That gets me excited. I don't know how Jonathan Edwards ever did it. I don't know how you could ever get into a pulpit and be like... Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I couldn't do it. I can't even keep still. I try to put my arms behind my back, and I can't even do that for five minutes. This stuff is exciting. It causes me to rejoice. Three, 
Persevere. Persevere. Dear ones, press on. It was George Whitfield that said, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Press on for the cause and glory of Christ. And finally, as I mentioned this already, we should be humbled. We should be humbled at this. This should bring humility. This is pride-crushing doctrine. The doctrine of the book of life of the Lamb, meaning your eternal security in Christ, that should be pride-crushing. The judgment of the wicked should be pride-crushing. It should cause us to bend and bend the knee and put our faces in the dirt for King Jesus. We would never be so ignorantly arrogant to believe that something we did or something in us actually secured our salvation over our neighbor. Could you imagine taking such a stance? Oh no, I prayed a prayer. He didn't. He should be in hell. No, actually, we deserve that. I'll leave you with a quote from Jonathan, or Jonathan? John MacArthur. I, I thought this was so good. I had to share it with you, and we'll close with this. He says, on this day, referring to the great white throne judgment, he says, quote, some in shock and horror will protest. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Matthew 7, 22. But they will hear in reply the most chilling, terrifying words that any human will ever hear. I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, end quote. MacArthur goes on to say, those who refuse to plead guilty to their sins in this world, repent and ask God for a pardon based on the substitutionary work of Christ, will face trial after they die. And on that day, they will be pronounced guilty. What did he just say there? If you fail to recognize your guilty verdict in this life, if you fail to say, guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. If you fail to reach that point, you will say on that final day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. They're the most terrifying words in the Bible. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know if I'm not going to be that one? Because this is what's your, what you're going to say on that final day. When, somebody, when, when, when God says, why? Why should you be allowed into heaven? And if any other answer comes to your heart and mind in this very moment, if any answer comes to your mind other than Christ, you're one of the Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? If you're for a moment, you say, I went to church. Or, I thought I was a pretty good guy. If that comes across your mind for a split second and your answer isn't because of Jesus, then we're on the receiving end of eternal punishment 
in hell and the lake of fire. See how urgent this is? <clears throat> See how important this is to have this fixated in our hearts and minds? How pride-crushing this is? Well, that's all I have for you this evening.